This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. I'll be here until six this evening. I've been away for two weeks. Many thanks to Juliet and others for putting the program together over those weeks. But today we're up to date and a sad and disturbing time for many particularly our Palestinian friends and colleagues. Today you'll be hearing from Amin Abbas, co-founder of Olive Kids, caring for Palestinian children in an orphanage in Gaza. Paul Haywood-Smith, looking at the present and also the history of Palestine and Israel. Fred Fuentes, with two elections in South America, Ecuador and Argentina. Dr Tim Anderson, looking at Palestine, but also the wider Middle East. But first, a very sombre Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jade listener, when even though I've missed the past couple of weeks with a nasty bloody cold, I'm I'm calling it a cold because I had a flu injection this season, so if it wasn't a cold, then the flu injection worked a treat. Even though it is impossible not to comment on the events of the past fortnight, and only once or twice in the now 40 years of the week that was, have I decided the events make satire impossible, that there is nothing to laugh about, even our usual bad jokes. The week of the Tiananmen Square massacre was one example, and the same applies to the events of the past two or three weeks. There is a common thread, the victimisation of displaced peoples, rendered landless by the colonists and land grabbers and their affluent first world backers. Uh, we could have set up a no voter explaining she, he was not racist, but the racism let loose by the no campaign was too serious. I'm going to tell two stories going back a long way. About 40 years ago, I was in Lebanon as a guest of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, visited refugee camps where the displaced explained they had lots of kids despite their squalid conditions because we need the next generation of freedom fighters. On a Sunday afternoon, we were taken south to the Zion border where we met young men fighting for that freedom. One, a final year med student at Amman University, spending his summer back fighting for the Palestinian cause, and then going back to Jordan to complete his studies if he survived the summer. That was their life. Many of the refugees were the generation thrown out by the Western powers, all wanting nothing more than to return to their ancestral land and homes. They were, have, never been allowed back. Apart from those smiling kids who happily posed for photos, 40 years later presumably being the generation of freedom fighters, nothing has changed. The dispossessed still bombed, jailed, killed, homes demolished, crops destroyed by so-called settlers, lives controlled by the trained killers of an illegal occupying power supported by world capital. Sure, the attack on Zion by Hamas was violent, yet the Palestinian landless have suffered violence for at least 75 years. The capitalist world, including our government and, of course, Zion, declares Zion has a right to defend itself. But if the victims of colonisation and daily oppressive colonisation resist, they are further victimised, bombed, maimed and killed, homes demolished and declared militants or terrorists, when the real terrorism has been practiced by Zion governments and Zion-trained killers for seven and a half decades. As we know, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. 
the supporters of Zion terrorism maintain the mantra of the two-state solution, a total impossibility as Zion settlements squeeze the ejected onto ever-decreasing space. And there is little chance of those illegal settlers being told to vacate the land they steal. Thus, difficult as, difficult as it will be, the only logical solution is a multiracial, non-religious state not based on one race or one religion, conceding, of course, that Palestinians are also Semitic people. And it is important to iterate that the enemy is Zionism, a racist philosophy, and not Jewish people. Now let me go back even further to when I was living in an anti-Vietnam War community called DMZ, Demilitarized Zone, a shop in Chapel Street, Paran, where four of us lived permanently and who knows how many people were there on any given night. Toward the end of its life, Rod Marks moved in with us, a full-blooded indigenous bloke, and on the Saturday night between Christmas and New Year, he came out of the pub across the road, 10 o'clock closing in those days, where coppers were waiting, and no surprise, they arrested just one person. No need to guess who. Rod rang us next morning to bail him out, and could we bring a doctor because he had been bashed by the coppers, who, as is their habit, and Paran Police Station was infamous, charged him with assaulting them. Being that time of year, we couldn't find any of the friendly left-leaning doctors we knew, but Rolf, a DMZ regular visitor, rang a, uh, a doctor he knew who said he would meet us at the police station. Rolf said he had no idea of the doctor's politics. We waited and waited and waited, and finally rang the doctor to ask where he was. Oh, it's all right, he said. I rang Paran Police Station and asked if they had someone who'd been bashed, and they said no. Now we had an idea of his politics. What universe was he living in? We bailed Rod out, took photographs of his injuries, which we presented when he fronted the beak, and he beat the rap. I raise that because, like nothing changing for the Palestinians over those 40 years, and indeed 75 years, nothing has changed for Indigenous Australians after all those years. Just last week, a teenager on remand and never found guilty of any crime died in an adult prison cell. Thursday last week, Queensland police shot and killed another black man. In both cases, no one will face the consequences, but if anyone were charged, he, she would be found not guilty by an all-white jury. Yet in 1988, after the huge Black March and the events surrounding the Bicentennial celebrations, I left Sydney feeling positive about the future of Indigenous relations, clearly misplaced. Now, when the first people of this land invite the colonial power to recognise them and their thousands of years' relationship to the land whose flora and fauna capitalism is rapidly destroying, asked to be allowed to make decisions for themselves, 60% said no. And while there was a progressive no vote, which I can understand and respect, that would have been a very small percentage. Despite denials, there is but one conclusion, racism. The misinformation, disinformation, outright lies, obfuscation, which even told us the majority of Aboriginal people themselves opposed being recognised. The vote in Indigenous communities exposed that lie. Too late, of course. And the slogan, if you don't know, vote no, was, as the statement released by some Yes proponents last week made clear, a call to public ignorance. But then the vote itself was a testament to ignorance. 
At the door, as I entered the polling booth, was a sign, we acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, etc. And I thought, if the polls are correct, non-Indigenous Australia is about not to acknowledge all Indigenous people. On a positive note, of course, millions did vote yes. None of this will prevent the Palestinian people and our Indigenous people and those who support them continuing the struggle to right the wrongs, the terrible consequences of their respective dispossessions. As usual, the struggle goes on, and we will get back to the usual week that was next week, but, but I, I can't help myself. Mr. No, Constable No, Constable Peter Duffer, whose political strategy is oppose everything the government does, which we often do as well, but for different reasons, this week supported the government in sending train killers and their killing machines to protect Zion from the Gaza non-land, non-people terrorists. More brownie points, while big supremo Anthony all being oozy was licking U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world supremo Joe Biden capital's boots, while the U.S. of has sent heaps of train killers and train killing machines which have been shooting down Hamas petty bangers, while warning countries not to interfere or widen the conflict. So finally, okay, I got all that off my chest, my cold-infected chest. Uh, till next week, good afternoon. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. It's impossible for us so far away and without experienced it ourselves to imagine the pain and suffering being inflicted on the people of Gaza. As the bombs rain down, buildings collapse, tanks roll in, crushing and destroying what is left. It's not the first time, but it's the worst time for the people of Gaza. Today, Palestinian activist and co-founder of the organisation the Australian Foundation for Palestinian Children, Olive Kids, Amin Abbas, will talk about the anguish as the death toll of Gazan children increases exponentially on a daily basis. Amin, this attack on Gaza is by no means the first, but it's the most brutal. What was the situation back in 2007 which led to you and fellow Australian Palestinians together with others, to establish Olive Kids. It really has been one of those most rewarding things I've ever done, to be honest, in my life. I think I often say that my third child is really Olive Kids because we have, over the years, created an organisation that's helped thousands of Palestinian children, uh, whether through 
supporting them, sponsoring them when, you know, we have sponsored orphans or uh, kids that were smart students and we sponsored through scholarships or through a lot of the medical programs that we were part of. So it's really the most rewarding. Uh, and I think it's something that I always take pride in. Sadly, the last few days, as you would appreciate, I felt that I'm, I'm witnessing uh, a lot of the work that we've done really pr- crumbling in front of my eyes. And what are your fears and knowledge of what is happening to the children that you've grown to love and also the people who look after them and their families? Yeah, the situation in Gaza, as I'm sure a lot of people have been hearing and witnessing, is uh, extremely catastrophic. Uh, Very early on, the orphanage that we sponsored children uh, or accommodate the children that we sponsor has been bombed. The children had to be evacuated. Uh, typically, in situations like this, uh, people responsible ask extended family to take the children, which is what has happened, which also means that these children, typically, when they go to their extended families, they're not necessarily looked after like you know their, their own families, and sadly, because they don't have them, they're extremely marginalized. Uh, but we're also fearing for the safety and the well-being, and it's very, very difficult to understand what is happening with them in, in the current situation in, in Gaza. The workers themselves had to also evacuate after the orphanage was bombed. The orphanage happens to be in the Rimal, which is a neighborhood up in the north, which predominantly has been flattened very in the very early days of the war uh, and the onslaught on Gaza. So sadly, uh, we, we don't know what's happening with the children. The people that work there had to look after their own families and, and their own safety. Quite a few of them who are able to, and not everybody is, by the way, uh, some that are able to move to the South have, uh, some that don't have the option of moving to the South. It's not like a place where you have the luxury of finding a place to stay or an Airbnb. You're talking about people that go and sit with extended families, and a lot of them actually have been you know, staying in open areas because they, they, there's nowhere to go, or even like hospitals or car parts of hospitals like we saw at the Ahli Hospital. The orphanage, interestingly, uh, after, in spite of the damage, you families have actually gone there because they feel they're safer in, a, in an orphanage than being in their own homes, wishing that there won't be further strikes at the, ho- at the orphanage. Uh, so there's about 200 people that we we understand have actually taken refuge in the orphanage in spite of the destruction. Uh, um, university has also sustained some some serious damage in, in the attacks, and we don't know the students as well. The hospital that we work with also has uh, been under a lot of pressure, as like every other hospital, with a lack of fuel and electricity for the generators. And a number of times they've been asked to evacuate, and they said, we can't evacuate. They're extremely sick, and the women who are having babies and, you know, children on incubators, we, we can't really leave them. So it really has been a very difficult situation for us and for all, all our partners. Just remind people how small Gaza is. And when they say, oh, well, you can move from the north to the south, what area are they talking about? Gaza is like 365 square kilometres. It's a, it's a narrow strip, so kind of the wide strip area is about five kilometres from a border to, to the sea. So an extremely narrow area. And it's one of the most densely populated places on Earth. If, uh, you know, it was calculated that if uh, the same density of people would have in Australia, would have like 40 billion people. It's definitely a place where 
it's so difficult to find a place you know to, that that has that is safe. So when when we ask uh, people how they feel about moving to the south, they they actually say there's not enough spaces for us to move there, and the destruction in the south is actually just as horrific as the north. In fact, San Yunus, which was actually bombed overnight and the day before as well, is in the south. Families were wiped out, you know, during that uh, time. In fact, people as they were moving from the north to the south were killed. I know of like a, at least a few families uh, that live here in Australia with, with their cousins and their, their like a, one of the people I know, his, his brother and his full family were wiped out as they were moving. So they were actually evacuating. So nowhere is safe in Gaza. It's a very small place. Asking 1.2 million people to move from the north to the south is a war crime in, it, in, it, in itself. And of course, even before the 7th of October, the situation in Gaza was dire. It has been for up to 16 years. Uh, absolutely. You're talking about a whole population of, like, obviously, like a lot of people say 2.3 million, but there's a lot of other estimates that suggest it's more like 2.5 million people that live in Gaza that have been put on diet, according to the Israeli government. And this is actually, you know, throughout the last 16 years, as you said, Jan. So this is not, not recent. And put on diet, that means that the amount of food that gets into the strip before this war was calculated based on how, like what calories per, per, per person we need to allow in. So you're talking about something like about 500 trucks, roughly, of food that would go in that does not even you know, satisfy what typically you'd expect it to need. But because of the Israeli government restrictions, that was how much it was allowed in. Now, during the war, for a few days, obviously, there was nothing that was going in, no food, no water, no, no electricity. Uh, but then when they started to say, oh, we're going to allow some aid in, your listeners need to understand that this is actually truly a drop in an ocean. You're talking about like, you know, having like, a, I think they were saying about 20 trucks one day and um, 15 another day and nothing actually. One of the days there was nothing. So you're talking about not even being close to what was happening pre-7th of October. And even that, there was actually before that for 16 years, it was not enough to satisfy, I mean, malnutrition and a lot of the problems that we hear about in Gaza has been an ongoing thing for years. This is why All of Kids was actually created, because we felt that we can't really sit down and watch as, as you know, the children of Gaza like suffer in this way. And again, like our work historically has been a drop in the ocean as a small organization. So we are talking about really a catastrophe that has been unfolding for 16 years, but now has just got to a different level. It's a genocide that is being committed with really denying people the very basics of life uh, is, is absolutely horrific. And when you say we, you mean Palestinians in Australia and you also other Australians who have been supporting the Palestinians all those years. Absolutely. I mean, the work that we do means nothing without the generosity of Australians. Uh, this is not just a community thing. All of Kits is uh, really works, you know, by raising funds from all Australians. This is a non-religious, a political organisation. So definitely all the work that we've done over the years uh, is credited to the contribution of the generalist Australians that have been believing in in supporting all children, including the Australian, like the Palestinian children, uh, and Australian sectors for that. So it's not only your work that's crippled; it's all other NGOs are crippled. And you can't imagine. I mean, I know 
the, the trauma for the, the people of Palestine, of people of Gaza particularly, has been tremendous over all those years. But can you imagine what it's going to be like for the survivors when this is over? Absolutely. So, Jan, we have done a lot of programs to help with post-traumatic stress for the children uh, in Gaza over the years, after every war, really. And it's been extremely devastating, right? Uh, some of the things that they, they've experienced over the years. I can't even imagine what it's like today. I mean, we're talking about adults that are really struggling. I mean, we're talking about, um, like last night I was speaking to the manager of the orphanage and he was telling me how difficult it has been because every night when they go to bed, they don't know what the morning is going to be like, right? whether they're going to be surviving or not, whether they're going to alive or not. And they were saying to me that like the neighbors, the loved ones, every single day, they're actually hearing their sad stories of losing loved ones, right? So it's all about children that losing, you know, the whole families. Like, you know, uh, the story yesterday about the two kids that came into the hospital and they didn't know like what to what family they come from. They're just two kids with no family. And they called them like six and seven. Just gave them numbers because there's a few of those kids that are coming in and they can't really like figure out like who, where is their family? There's no parents, there's nothing. The whole family dies except for the children. So what kind of life and what kind of like, you know, uh, uh, mental state those kids would, would grow up with? And I'm talking about thousands of kids that are like that, let alone uh, uh, even the adults, right? And honestly, like I think the children are the most heartbreaking, but I really feel the same for everybody, for men and the women and, and everybody. It has really been a very difficult situation. I mean, they're telling us what you need to understand is Gaza today is a place where there's no civilization. We don't have electricity. It means we don't have fridges. We don't have internet. We don't have like you know, the very basic supply, right? We don't have food. Like some people don't want to eat because they don't want to go to the toilet, because there's no toilets to go to. There's no sanitation, there's infections. It's really a horrific place at the moment. So God help us. Well, the whole world is watching what's happening in Gaza. You must be, I don't say disappointed, must be horrified that there's not more being done to force Israel to pull back and just get out of there. Horrified, Jan, because the, the world is really condoning war crimes committed against the people of Gaza, really, including the Australian government. It's really, I don't know, I'm pretty sure in, like, maybe, I don't know, I hope that it's, it's going to happen now because we're going to have to stop it. But there will be a time when people will say, when that genocide happened against Palestinians, what did you do? What did you do? And people need to really confront that for themselves to really answer that question. Because I really believe we are all responsible. We are all responsible in really not, you know, standing up for our governments and saying enough is enough. You cannot really, I mean, this is textbook genocide according to human rights experts. Nobody is questioning that denying people the very basic supply and really this indiscriminate killing of everybody it is unacceptable. But what are we doing about it? Uh, this is the frustrating part, Jan. I think everybody, everybody who's listening, need to think about that question. Well, we all get out in the streets. What else to be done? I think uh, educating people around us is super important. I mean, people need to understand that this is a role that everybody can play and influence. This is one, educate, educate, educate. Number two, engage with your politicians. I mean, we uh, had a, a, a visual in front of like Keith Wallahan, who is the um, 
federal member for Menzies for the area I live in, and, and people were asking me, what are we doing? And we just literally just stood there in front of his office to make a point. And actually, we wrote a list of all the people that we lost, that we know personally in Gaza, whether family or friends or people we know of. We actually wrote a list, and the list was huge, right? And this is just, like, we are connected. This is not halfway across the world. This is a catastrophe and a war crime that is happening on our watch of people that we know of, and we're really connected to these people. We're all responsible. So this is the second thing, is speak to your politicians. Thirdly, connect with the media. The media has been playing a role that is that could be, like, we should really do better uh, with the media. The fact that, you know, some of the, the war crimes are being condoned, some of the misinformation that is being repeated. I mean, I can't believe how many times I've heard of like the headless babies and the rape, which was debunked very early on, and it's still being used to justify the war crimes. The media has a role to play to fact check. Do not really repeat some of the propaganda that's coming from the Israeli side. It's unacceptable. I mean, they need to do their job and the role. So this is the other thing is everybody should really question the media. Everybody needs to find the correct information. I think these are the, the three things I can, can think of. Get on the street, engage and educate, speak to politicians, and fact check and, and speak to the media. And supporting each other, the Palestinians around Australia, it's such a difficult time. That's what you have to do at this difficult time. Jan, on that point, I have to say, I have never personally in my life received as many support messages. I'm not worried. I think people are seeing through this. And honestly, the, the amount of people that have been reaching out and offering their support is unprecedented with me, with my family, with a lot of the Palestinians that I know. It's, it, it is definitely heartwarming to see this. I mean, we got on the streets on, on the protest and we see the thousands and thousands of people. Uh, one of the people, one of the speakers asked how many people were here for the first time, and nearly half of the people, 30,000 were in Melbourne on Sunday. Nearly half of these people said they were here for the first time. People are seeing through this, and I believe people are on side and seeing the war crimes being committed. And I'd like to think what happened in, in apartheid South Africa and what happened with the war in Vietnam, it wasn't the politicians who were like suddenly finding their conscience. It was actually the people on the street that helped change this. And I think we are, at this time, about to see the same thing happening for us in Palestine. Well, thank you, Amin, and I wish you well. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. Amin Abbas was one of the founders of Olive Kids. Do look up their webpage, Olive Kids, to find out the wonderful work they've done. And I'm sure in the future it will continue. Since 1954, Overland has been home to local and international literature, non-fiction and cutting-edge poetry. Overland Journal's subscriber drive is on from November the 3rd. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between November the 3rd to the 10th will go on the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today. Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter. The 
Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. All over Australia, people are expressing their anger and sadness at the relentless killing of Palestinians in Gaza. Not a new thing, but the worst in decades. In Adelaide, people are mobilising and attending rallies each weekend to put pressure on the powers that be to end the senseless slaughter. Today I'm speaking with the founding convener of the Adelaide-based Australian Friends of Palestine Association, recently retired QC Paul Hayward-Smith, who has been putting pen to paper with the online journal Pearls and Irritations. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time again, Paul, and first your article published on the 17th of October, 100 Years of Ethnic Cleansing, Quo Vadis, Palestine. Quote, it is important for us to see what is happening here. The wider context must be understood to enable decisions to be made that are correct, unquote. How do you see that wider context? Well, the wider context to me is obviously the opportunity which Israel sees, having the sympathy of the world for what happened on the 7th of October, to advance their desire to ethnically cleanse the whole of the land of Palestine. That, to me, is obvious from their tactics with Gaza. They tell the Gazan people, well, we're going to come in there and get Hamas, so it's best if you vacate the area. But they can only go south. They can't vacate into Israeli Sinai or the West Bank because that's just transferring Palestinians from one part of what they see as the land of Israel to another. So they have to go south, uh, and south is pushing it closer to Egypt. And there's no way that a million Palestinians, for example, who left the north would be allowed back to the north when they're down south if their only escape route is into Egypt, there's no way that Israel will let them back from Egypt. So, so this is a lovely opportunity for Israel to erase Gaza. And that's, that's the phrase that, they've actually, that was actually used by the Israeli government. They're going to be erasing Gaza. Um, but, um, of course, it's not just in Gaza that this has been going on. In the West Bank, we've got multiple reports of the settlers going rampant driving farmers out off their land uh, with, a, with the intention of Judaizing Area C, which is the phrase they use. So that's the wider context that I see. Just stay with that Area C for the moment. Can you explain what Area C is and what Area A and B are? You recall back at the time of Oslo, the Oslo Accords, there was... Uh, a plan, uh, Area A was to be governed solely by the Palestinian Authority. Area B was, Israel had 
uh, more uh, of a role than area A and area C, which is Judea, the northern part, uh, was substantially to be governed by Israel pending the period of time, the process period of time by which all of the accords will be put into effect, leaving at the end of it uh, a Palestinian state over all of A, B and C. But area C is the area that uh, Israel has its greatest designs on and that's where their main efforts are. But have no doubt that uh, the intention is that Israel will, its ultimate plan is to have the whole of the land of Israel. And um, and that's why, I mean, using, look at their language, look at, look at that Yahoo's language a few weeks ago, quote, the Jewish people have an exclusive and inalienable right to all parts of the land of Israel, end quote. And of course, we have in Israel at the moment a, a government which half of the members of which are members of religious right parties. These are people with very strong religious views. And, and of course, you only have to hear some of their quotes. I mean, the, the, the quote is that God gave to the Jews uh, the land of Israel from the Great River to the, um, that runs through Iraq. And the Great River, of course, is the Nile. Now, if you take the, the land from the Nile, uh, the, the Euphrates, if you take the land, all of the land from the Nile to the Euphrates, you've got a large section of Egypt, all of Jordan, substantial part of Lebanon, all of Syria, and half of Iraq. So, I mean, if these people are going to continue that attitude, and of course they say that they can't negotiate to agree a Palestinian state because that would be giving away something that God gave to them. Now, when you're dealing with people who think in those terms, you've got no hope of succeeding. And that's why I get so angry with our government and the, the um, foreign minister when she says, oh, Australia supports a two-state solution to be negotiated by the parties, when it is patently obvious to anyone that Israel will never negotiate a state of Palestine, and they've said so. That is why I get angry about about our government position. And when you look at that position of Israel and you see the Christian Zionists in the US espousing similar points of view, and that's where the money is mainly coming from. Quite so, and, and there was a very, very interesting article that I saw the other day about the Christian right in the United States, what God instructed Samuel, for example. Now, you know, the book of Samuel, if you look at it, you'll see in chapter 15, verse 3, God, or the Lord of hosts instructs Samuel, quote, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling oxen, sheep, camel, and ass, end quote. Now, that quote about Amalek and the Amalekites was picked up. There was an article in a magazine called Truth Out in the United States about a week ago, quote, Christian right cites violent biblical Amalek trope to justify Israel's tactics. So there you have the Christian right in the United States with huge political power 
saying, well, look, God instructed Samuel to slay the Amaleks. That's exactly what Netanyahu should be doing to the Gazans. It's just appalling. That uh, reference to Amalek is not only uh, picked up by the Christian right in the United States, but it, it actually was, was quoted only a few days on the same day in the Times of Israel, which is one of their major newspapers, drawing attention to uh, Amalek uh, and the fact that um, it is appropriate for their forces to seek to destroy Hamas. And uh, they describe Hamas as the reincarnation of Amalek. It just disturbs me that the that people are using these religious nations to justify today's conduct. And it, and it really distresses me that our government seems to be prepared to just go along with it. And do you believe that the majority of the so-called settlers, the illegal settlers in the West Bank, have that point of view as well? No, I haven't seen anything specifically in respect to that, but I mean... Um, uh, there's no doubt that I think that the, a lot of the settlers in the West Bank are on the religious right, uh, and so not unlikely that they do hold those views. But we need to, with people in the ministry like this Smotrick, the Minister of Finance, and this Ben Revere, the Minister of National Security, I mean, they are extremely right-wing religious people. They are sitting around the table calling, making the decisions. And when um, they have this opportunity to, as they say, erase Gaza, I mean, they are saying to the Gazan people now, leave Gaza or die. That's what they're saying, leave or die. The only reason for that, in my view, is this to fulfil this um, prophecy and uh, to, to, to remove from the land, what they call the land of Israel, all non-Jewish people. It's, it's wrong anyway. I mean, there were always non-Jewish people in the land of Israel. I mean, the, you go back I mean, two, three thousand years, the Canaanites, and, and then after Jesus Christ, I mean, the Christians, they have lived there for, for, for generations, two thousand years since the birth of Christ. And quite frankly, until the Ashkenazi Jews were, were allowed to come into Israel in or about the time of just before and after the Second World War. The Jewish people lived with the Arab people quite harmoniously. The Semitic Jews, the, the Jews that lived around the Mediterranean, particularly Alexandria and for a period in Spain and Morocco and so on, they lived in harmony with Jewish people. It's only when we had this settler colonialism uh, of European Jewry, in particularly 1948, the time of the of the Nakba, the time of the of the declaration of the state of Israel. It's only since then that you've had this concept of ex exclusivity. You must be very disturbed and angry, as many people are, how the world media is covering this catastrophe. Oh, very much so. There seems to be a bit of a, a little bit of a change. I've noticed a bit of a change. What I think has to be done is people, we, we have to concentrate on how to bring it to an end. Now, you may have seen in an article of mine, Pearls and Irritations, the plan of the president of Turkey, uh, Erdogan, uh, which I believe is a very 
a very good plan and he, he calls for the end of all hostilities, so ceasefire, the release of hostages, and, and that would include the release of Palestinian detainees, then proceeding to two, two states, a state of Israel and a state of Palestine, and finally the borders of the state would be the 67 Green Line borders. Now, it's clear that Israel would not have a bar of any of that because they, they want all of the land, but it, it seems to me to be the only possibility of getting the vast... I, I think the vast majority in the community of nations would agree to it. I mean, even our government says, oh, yes, a two-state solution. Oh, yes, 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 yes we would like a two-state solution. So, so even Australia couldn't object to the first three of Erdogan's terms. The last one of Palestinian state being on the green line is supported by the fact that in 1967, after the 67 war, when Israel occupied the West Bank, the Security Council passed Resolution 242 that the occupation should end and the border should be the Green Line, in other words, the 67 borders. And that vote in the Security Council was carried 15 to zero. So it included the United States. Nothing has happened since then to justify any change. I mean, the Oslo Accords were basically uh, drawn on the 67 borders. Uh, of course, Israel says, oh, well, you know, um, well, things have changed since then. Facts on the ground now. We've you know, got settlers have moved in and they've made all these settlements and so on. Of course, that is Israel seeking to benefit from its own illegal actions. And people should clearly recognise that. You won't get Israel to agree to it. But if the world said, this is it, the United Nations, I've got no doubt the United Nations would pass a resolution in these terms. If a country like Australia would recognise the state of Palestine on those borders, the vast majority of other countries in the world would. No doubt the United States wouldn't, but so be it. But if then all of the states who had adopted it, put sanctions on Israel whilst it continued to maintain the occupation, then ultimately Israel would have to, would have to give in because once it starts losing its capacity to trade and so on, um, then it, its own citizens would see that it has to accept what the world wants. So that's, uh, it was a very positive proposal by Erdogan and I think that it's one that that I would love our government to um, adopt. When our government says, oh, yes, you know, we support a two-state solution with the borders to be negotiated, as soon as they add that last phrase, the borders to be negotiated, they know it can never happen because Israel will never negotiate. And so it has to be a border dictated. And if it's going to be a dictated border, there is no reason for it to be any other than the 67 Green Line, which the Security Council adopted. That's what we need to be pressing our government to do. And unfortunately, if our government continues to uh, be dictated to by the US-Israeli lobby, then I'm afraid that um, our government will be voted out of office uh, at the next election. And just the fact, Paul, that 
a country that has been labelled by human rights organisations and others, including one of the champions of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, as apartheid and continues to have world support? Well, it's the most important point that you've raised, Jan, because apartheid is a crime. It's a crime against humanity. It's been That's the Convention and the Rome Statute and the Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, the two major organisations, have done extensive reports on the topic and have said, yes, clearly Israel is an, an apartheid state. And one only has to listen to what their government says to, to realise that it's a, a racist apartheid state. Now, that is illegal. And so when someone like um, our Prime Minister Albanese says, oh, Israel has a right to exist, he is wrong. Israel in its present form does not have a right to exist. It is a, an, an illegal regime. It is an apartheid regime, as was the de Klerk regime in South Africa 50-odd years ago, and it does not have a right to exist in that form. Now, that, no one is saying, I'm not saying, nobody is saying that one Jewish citizen of the current state of Israel has to leave. They can all stay there. All that has to happen is that for them to have a constitution which guarantees the rights of all and equality of all and freedom of religion and not the supremacy of the Jewish people. And then it ceases to be an apartheid state and then that state would have a right to exist, but not the current Israel. And neither does the current Israel have a right guaranteed to defend itself. It does not have a right to defend an illegal regime. People need to understand these these concepts. And it's very interesting to note, things are happening. I mean, in the United States last week, an organisation known as the Centre for Constitutional Rights, which is made up of a large number of lawyers from around the country, they concentrate on constitutional rights of all people. But they've come out and said and found that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza and the United States is complicit in it. So, you know, there is some intelligence and common sense in the United States that hopefully, ultimately, will start to cause their politicians, although their politicians are going through such a, a difficult time at the moment, to view things differently. Well, the politicians might be not doing the right thing, if that's a pretty mild way to put it, but the people of the world are. They're coming out in their... I'd say there must be millions now. Yes, it's, it's encouraging. I mean, when they saw something on the telly the other day in London, they said, oh, uh, there was 100,000 at a rally. Uh, I also heard that um, that, that figure uh, had been de devalued by the press uh, and that it was actually a lot more than that, uh, which is huge. Uh, and um, even in little old Adelaide last Sunday week, there was a demonstration of the Parliament House and were marched to Victoria Square and they say that there was 4,000 there. Well, that's a reasonable number. And then two weeks later, they had it again and they said it was up to 10,000. Now, I don't know what's going on in Melbourne and uh, I've been following that much, but uh, and but Sydney as well, I believe, has had some substantial rallies. Well, obviously, certainly in the Muslim world, I mean, Indonesia and Malaysia 
and Pakistan, the, the, the citizens of those countries are angry, very angry. Uh, obviously, they're limited in what they can do, but I can't understand how Israeli people can't see that they are creating such hatred against them that it's going to rebound. November the 11th, the 2023 Edward Sayed Memorial Lecture. The person is Francesca Albanese. She is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territory Occupied since 1967. I'd imagine that she's had to alter her speech a little from what she might have planned a month ago. I've read the speech which the Edward C. Memorial Lecture which she gave a month ago in London. It was, it was obviously before all of this recent, um, these recent troubles. But um, her speech was very, very good and to the point. To, to in, in, in England, I don't know what she's, what changes she will make and what she will say. I mean, obviously, she is someone who is representing the United Nations, uh, and so she must um, be restrained in some to some degree. But we're looking forward to her being here in Adelaide, and of course, she's going on to address the uh, the press club or whatever it is in Canberra a day or so later. So she'll get fairly high exposure in Adelaide, in Australia. What about your listeners? Are you, do you get feedback? The station's getting feedback from the Zionist lobby. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> as, as the Zionist lobby, all I need to say about them is that for the last 20 years, I have challenged them to present somebody to debate. They never accept the offer, ever. Uh, I think I know why. Any of them listening to your program, I am prepared to debate anywhere. I've been speaking to Paul Haywood-Smith, the patron of Australia Friends of Palestine Association, and he mentioned the Edward Sayed Memorial Lecture, which takes place in Adelaide on the 11th of November, the guest speaker being Francesca Albanese. She is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territory, occupied since 1967. You can listen to that lecture by going to their website, Australian Friends of Palestine Association webpage and connecting to the lecture. Have fun on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Nup to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. I spoke with journalist, author and activist Fred Fuentes at the weekend and the issues were the two recent elections in South America. 
and those two countries are Ecuador and Argentina. Can we begin with Ecuador, Fred? The heir to banana fortune has won the presidential elections, 35-year-old Daniel Nevaeh. But can you first talk a little about the recent past seen in Ecuador, which might give an explanation as to why he has won? As you pointed out, Daniel Noboa, who, who won the elections, which occurred on the 15th of October, is both a young candidate. As you've pointed out, he's part of a family of, uh, in fact, the richest family in Ecuador, whose dad had previously run for president five times, but each time failed to be elected. But Daniel Noboa himself he was, up until the election, relatively unknown. He'd been in parliament since 2021. So he'd been in parliament for a few years, but been pretty innocuous. Uh, in Parliament himself, and actually set up a new party to campaign for his presidential election. How to understand his victory uh, is a twofold one. Firstly, it's the result of the decline of the traditional right-wing parties, and and also to to a certain extent, the traditional centre-left parties in Ecuador. The party that had been in power, the party of Guillermo Lasso, or the party that had, had, had elected him only a few years ago, saw their support just completely tumble uh, as a result of four years of economic austerity and of, of corruption. So in that context, uh, Nabal was out presenting himself as a kind of a, a fresh face, but one that, you know, distances itself from that right wing, that traditional right wing. So a large part of his support base, for example, came from traditional uh, left and centre-left voting areas in, in Ecuador. Uh, and parties for, for in areas where in the last elections had voted not for, in fact, for Lasso, had voted for either the Democratic left, a centre-left party, or for Pachacuti, uh, an Indigenous party, uh, both of whom this time around had their support base collapsed um, because they, they went in behind Navarro. But the other reason or the other explanation for why Navarro was able to be elected is actually is explained by the person that he ran against in the runoff elections, Luisa Gonzalez, uh, who was a candidate who had the backing of former president, uh, Rafael Correa, who had been in power uh, for two terms uh, early in the in the 2000s, first been elected in about 2004, uh, if I could get the year correct. Rafael Correa, his time in power, came to represent, at that time, a new force in politics, uh, one that represented a more uh, radical left force within politics in the context of what was happening in the region. But that during that time in government created a lot of enemies against its political project. Of course, the, the, the most immediate and obvious enemies was that traditional right that constantly ran to defeat uh, Correa and opposed his project from the start, but also that kind of centre-left sort of constituency, which had originally backed uh, Correa when he was first elected, um, but then later tended to drift away from Correa, and this time around did not back uh, or did not want to be seen to back his incumbent or his uh, preferred candidate, Luisa Gonzalez, who, who ran a, a campaign which was strongly identified with that time in Korean government. She, their, their feeling was that they could run an anti-Lasso campaign, uh, an anti, you know, what had happened the last four years, or in fact, even a bit longer, because we could then draw into the, the more complicated issue in this whole discussion, which is then uh, Lenin Moreno, who was the president between Korea. Uh, who was meant to be Correa's, you know, followed in, in, in his footsteps, who was elected on Correa's party, but broke with Correa's party. 
party then ultimately ends up uh, being one of the forces behind uh, Noboa. That's the two things that Noboa represents both this sort of break with the traditional right parties uh, in Ecuador, represents a new face, a fresh face, even though, as I said, he's, he's, he's sort of ironic to think of that in the context of someone whose dad ran as president five times, but he himself presents himself as being different uh, from that and also presents himself as being different from the Correa uh, Citizens Revolution Movement, which was the main person that ran against him, who had actually come first in the first round election. Uh, with a vote of in the vicinity of about 33% compared to his 24%. Uh, but in the end, Nobel was able to galvanise all of those other disparate voters uh, in an, in an anti-sort of uh, anti-Luis uh, Gonzalez bloc uh, and come victor in, in these elections. Now, it should also be noted that these were special elections. They were called by Lasso, facing impeachment. He did um, what is called sort of Muerte Cruzada. Basically, what it means is that he simultaneously dissolved parliament and was forced to convene new presidential elections within six months. And those presidential elections are only cover a term now to the end of what would have been his term. So Nabal will only be in power for 18 months, at which point when the next presidential elections are scheduled, a new elections will take place. So I think what we'll now see is essentially an 18-month-long presidential campaign where Nabal will be using his position to try to win an actual full term and where most likely the citizens' revolution will most likely again be the key contenders uh, will be spending that time uh, gearing up to be able to present their candidate for president once again. How important was the state of the economy in this election? The economy was certainly one aspect of it, but probably there was a defining factor. And of course, it's very hard to ever say an election is defined purely just by one factor. But the one big factor that really differentiated this election from the recent elections in Ecuador was, was actually the issue of crime. Most spectacularly, this was exposed by the fact that one, one of the presidential candidates was assassinated during the, the first round presidential campaign. It's very clear that this was linked to criminal gangs, you know, drug gangs, and that were behind his, his assassination. But Ecuador has, in the last few years, I mean, obviously it's a lot of complex factors involved, but I think two probably key important factors that have occurred is changes that have occurred in the drug trade, particularly in neighbouring Colombia, we have had as a result of the, the peace accords with the guerrillas, changing factors occurring on the ground, and the fact that cocaine shipments have largely left now going north to the US and now and more going south and out to the Pacific Ocean. So Ecuador's now become a sort of corridor for drug trafficking, much more than it was before. And then also the, the COVID pandemic kind of fracturing society through the lockdowns and the different sort of policies that were enacted at that time. And seen crime really skyrocket. So that was a really big issue. Uh, in these elections, and it was certainly one of the issues, not the only one, but, but Noboa uh, very much ran a campaign where he tackled those issues of crime, but also ran a, a sort of a, a very centre, almost you could say centre-left campaign on terms of the economy of, of certainly not saying that he will exclusively just follow Lasso's policies, although it certainly you know, wants to continue a lot of the neoliberal policies that Lasso implemented, but also including some sort of social programs that kind of help the the poorest, and so was able to garner some support for his campaign on, on those issues as well. Are you saying that Ecuador is not a drug-producing country? Most of the drug that comes through Ecuador, so it's not producing in Ecuador. Um, you know, mo- most of it is coming really, really from Colombia. Whether there's uh, zero drug production in, in Ecuador, I, I imagine there is some, but that's that's not really the, the key factor. It's really Ecuador as, as a corridor for drugs as opposed to it being a drug-producing country, as, for example, Colombia might be. 
Are you also saying that the drugs aren't more prevalent in that area of the world now, or just that things are changing a little between countries? The, the indications is is that it's more a question of the direction of where consumption of of, of cocaine is occurring. So, yeah, I mean, this is a whole you know could almost be a whole discussion on on your program, but it's largely because of the rise of drugs such as fentanyl and the use of other opiates in the U.S. We've seen a certain decline in the sort of demand for cocaine and other markets for cocaine opening up in other parts of the world. And so the, the direction that drugs are taking in order to get to those other markets now sees less, although obviously it hasn't stopped, but we see less drug trafficking through Central America and now travelling more sort of south and west of South America. That's really, you know, a key factor that's occurred. As I said, another factor is the changes that have occurred within Colombia as well. Uh, in terms of the peace accords, the demobilisation of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, uh, who played an important role in you know, protecting communities against sort of the drug traffickers and, and paramilitaries aligned with drug cartels. Uh, now with their demobilisation, we've also now seen a, you know increased involvement of them, not just in Colombia but even in border regions with Ecuador. And you know the fear is that, of course, you know some of their activities have, of course, crossed over into Ecuador as well. And who are the victims in Ecuador of that drug trade increase in violence? In these elections, everyone felt that because, you know, of course, in general, when you see this rise in crime, it's, you know, it generally does affect more often the, the, the poorer neighbourhoods. But when you see not just one, not just the presidential candidate, uh, who was quite a well-known, you know, and was polling pretty well in the, in the polls, wasn't sort of expected to win, but was sort of in the vicinity of about 14, 15% that they were polling. So quite a high-profile person that that was assassinated. was also a candidate, if I call correctly, for mayor in one of the major cities in Ecuador that was also assassinated. No specific one sector of society. You know, this was an issue that was fought across the board and so had had um, an impact far beyond and had on on any other elections in Ecuador because it is seen as a a much more recent uh, issue that the country's having to deal with. It wasn't that long ago that Ecuador was sort of viewed as one of the safest places in the region. Uh, and at the last rankings in terms of crime and, and murder rates, essentially only behind, not in this particular order, but behind Colombia, Honduras and Venezuela, three countries that have you know, been quite known now for a while for being countries facing a big issue of, of crime and high murder rates. So... It's not just that crime has increased, but it's increased in a country that traditionally has been known for being one of the more sort of quieter places that has not been affected by this issue. So it really is a cross-society issue and, and did have a, an impact, a big impact in, in terms of these elections and what people were voting on. And this means that there's bigger gun culture in Ecuador now? In terms of like a gun ownership, I'm not sure that there's been a huge increase. You know, I, I don't have the statistics on that, but but certainly the rising gun crimes have has certainly been impacted society. What I mean is that if there's drug crime, are they drug raids or are they shootout? What happens? Yeah, exactly. So fights for control over territory, and then the the development of criminal gangs is then activities, of course, branch out into into other issues, whether that be you know. Uh, just general theft and also, uh, you know, assassinations, murders that occur for control over different neighbourhoods in order to be able to use those areas for the, you know, control of not just the distribution of drugs as in terms of those corridors, but also for the selling of drugs in, in those areas as well. How does he believe that he's going to stymie this huge increase in crime and drug-related issues? 
of course, this is the big question because the, the, the reality is everyone recognised that this, this election was only really, a, what would you call it, like a, a, a stopgap measure. It was, it was an election called outside of a normal electoral period. It was an election for which the president will only be in power for uh, 18 months at most. So the ability to really do a lot in that time uh, is going to be particularly particularly hard. You don't you don't turn around a, a, a huge crime wave, or you don't turn around a huge economic crisis in that short period of time. Really, what he's focused on, and it's been combined with his sort of anti-corruption campaign, is to look at the, the judicial system and how that needs to be fixed up uh, in order for those that are being who are responsible for crimes to be actually found guilty and be punished for for those crimes. So there's a, a, a strong sense of essentially impunity that exists at the moment that you know, everyone kind of knows who are the different drug cartels and yet nothing is being done, that none of them are being punished. In fact, that those that were um, caught or, or at least certainly arrested for the assassination of the presidential candidate uh, never in the end got to face trial because uh, all of them were, were found dead inside a prison cell. So that kind of sense of needing to clean up the, the entire judicial and, and related to the police system is sort of what being put forward. You just said the police system. Is there also corruption in the judiciary? As I said, apart from crime, the other big issue is corruption. Corruption is seen right throughout the, the Ecuadorian state. Part of that is allegations of corruption thrown against uh, competing parties in the elections. But there also is a, a genuine sense that that sort of corruption has been really corroding the, the institutions in Ecuador. And so that was a big factor that sort of he that he sort of talked about in wanting to sort of put forward sort of an alternative, saying about the need to deal with, with these issues. And what are his views on closer relationships with the United States? That was not really, let's say, a, a big issue that he, he sort of put forward. I mean, there's no indication at all that his policies are to move away from the US, but his campaign was really not focused on those kind of issues. It was kind of trying to present itself more as just like, Look, I'm just a new, fresh face. I don't represent the, you know, the traditional right. I also don't represent the the Correa and, and his movement and what that represented for Ecuador. And so, I tried to focus on very specific issues and on generally sort of uh, an image of wanting to restore sort of stability and calm and normality to Ecuador in the context of four to eight years of rising crime and rising economic crisis. Uh, so that's really what, what he's focused on. He, he didn't really sort of focus much on in terms of foreign policies and whether he would break with the US or increase ties with the US or, or how he would relate to, for instance, with Venezuela and the military government, you know, whether it be for or against those were issues that he tried to push to the side and, and just didn't really factor in into these election campaigns. This is 3CR Community Radio, Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett, and you're listening to an interview with activist journalist and writer, Fred Fuentes. Well, let's go south to Argentina. And the first round is over. The second round is to come on the 19th of November. There's also been a primary vote. Again, what's been the political situation in recent years which we can look at prior to this, these elections? Yeah, in some ways, even though the results, you know, well, and as you said, the results in Argentina aren't finished, and the results aren't exactly the same, but, but we, we see some similarities across the two. So yeah, just as I mentioned before, that in Ecuador, you know, really to understand how Noboa gets elected is to understand both the sort of the collapse of the traditional right parties, but also the kind of stagnation of the Correa and his political movement, Citizens Revolution movement, who, even though they came second, were really haven't been able to in the last elections to break through that threshold and, and win a majority in the elections. 
What we saw in Argentina is, is, is actually more dramatic in terms of the collapse of the two political forces that have fought for political power for pretty much the last 20 years. Those two forces being a sort of a, com- a, a combination of new and old right parties, the old being what are termed the radicals, although they're, they're not radical in any sense of the word, but that's the names of the civic union radicals, together with more business-led uh, new right forces uh, grouped around Mauricio Mercury. They had formed a coalition called uh, Together for Change and had, you know, with Mauricio Macri being in power uh, already in one term, in, uh, which was not that long ago, 2018, I think, was when, when he lost the election, towards the end of the, the 2010s anyway. The other main political force being Kirchnerism, uh, so the, the movement behind Nestor and Christina Kirchner, uh, who were figures within the Peronist Party, but whose support base was both groups, people outside of the traditional Peronist Party. The, I mean, Peronist Party, again, it's hard to explain in a short interview, but let's, for, for sake of simplicity, call it something similar to the Labor Party here in Australia in the sense that it has some sort of old connection with trade unions and, and workers and, you know, I suppose represents some kind of tender-left force. But in, in Argentina, it's, it's an even much broader house. So Kirchnerism included people outside of that Peronist Party, large sections of the Peronist Party, but also had Peronist sections of the Peronist Party that were against it and, and that, you know, would align with, with the sort of the right coalition. Now, this election actually saw neither of those two being able to, to get through to the second round. And the Kirchnerists basically were unable to realise that they could not win the election, so it didn't even compete within the Peronist primary uh, to be the presidential candidate. And in fact, the presidential candidate for the Peronist movement, which the Kirchnerists were supporting, uh, is someone who has traditionally been hostile to Kirchnerism, not broken with it, but when they were in government, but was certainly no, no fan of it and had previously run against Kirchnerism in the 2015 presidential election, so that's Sergio Massa. And now on, on the right, it was actually the new political formation of a more extreme right led by uh, Javier Millet, uh, who outpolled that sort of right coalition to make it into the second round. So now you have a second round that has neither of those two forces that have largely contended for power for the last two decades and has a sort of a, a renewed Peronism uh, under a different figurehead and a, a new right that is now led by none of the traditional parties, but instead by a sort of a new libertarian, uh, right-wing libertarian movement that brings together different elements of Trump and Bolsonaroism, um, but also has its own Argentinian flavour to it as well. So, you know, again, we see how the, the political crisis in Argentina, and just much like in, has occurred in Ecuador, has led to this sort of reformulation of politics and, and thrown up new political forces uh, that will now contest who, who gets the presidency um, uh, following the elections later uh, next month. And how bad is the economic situation? Well, the economic situation is even a lot worse than Ecuador, which perhaps explains why, you know, all of the political traditions, all the forces of the last two decades have basically collapsed. Um, and instead you have, you know, these new forces are, are emerging, even as I said, even if on the subject on the side of the Peronists, we see a kind of a, a recycling of, of that party or, or an element within within that party. But we're talking about a country that's had inflation in, in you know, over 100% inflation, a massive increase, you know, over the last few years in poverty in, in that country. You know, we've estimates saying that it's basically gone from 40% of the population to, you know, much closer now to 70, 80% of the population uh, living in poverty. Of course, with inflation, it's been the polarisation of uh, workers' wages. There's a very deep economic crisis that's, that's affecting the country. In some ways, the, the election campaign kind of, uh, you know, one sort of interesting element of it is that, in fact, the person who is 
running for the Peronist, Sergio Massa. Uh, he's actually currently the economic minister for the government that's presiding over this sort of, you know, very deep economic crisis, even if the crisis precedes the previous government. That He's a current economic minister, and yet despite this sort of very difficult situation, been able to present himself as a break from the existing government and representing a new a new path, a new way forward in trying to deal with, with the economic crisis. But I would say that certainly in Argentina, that combined with a general sort of sense of that kind of tried everyone already and tried those two political forces. Neither of those two were really able to fix the country. And so a kind of a generalised rejection of both Kirchnerism, as I said, who realised that there weren't much of a chance that didn't run. And then also the old new right coalition around Together for Change, who really have now, as a result of their election result, uh, not only been you know, pushed aside in terms of the main dominant force in the right of politics, but now found themselves uh, split going now into the second round where a section of them want to support Millet as their sort of preferred candidate, as a candidate of the right, whereas another section have sort of deemed Millet to be too extreme and so are either calling for a, not, you know, for a null vote, for a, a blank vote, or in some cases even saying that it's necessary to support Massa uh, in order to ensure that there isn't sort of uh, instability uh, should an, an extreme right candidate uh, who has no experience in, in government be elected as president. And how relevant is the legacy of COVID? The biggest impact that COVID could be said to have had on, on these elections is really how it contributed to, in the political sense, to the rise of Javier Millet, because... Up until then, Javier Millet had a, had a certain profile, but was you know not not involved in politics. A bit of a fringe element, but really his his sort of staunch criticism of the the policies enacted by the government at the time uh, during the COVID pandemic, in particular lockdown policies and his his calls for uh, freedom and defence of civil liberties, is what propels him into sort of being well known in Argentina. And so, you know, his outspoken criticism of COVID policy in 2020, 2021 is when he sets up his party. So it's only two years old does better than expected in the, the, the parliamentary elections that occur there, and within two years has built up a political force that is able to defeat the traditional old new right parties and their coalition, outpoll them, and is now, you know, certainly, you know, if polls are shown anything, it's, it's going to be a very close race to see who ultimately wins the, the president. I think it would be um, bold for anyone to sort of be proclaiming victory now. But I, I don't think there's anything that, to say that he couldn't win, uh, even if perhaps he's sort of a couple of percentage points at the moment behind in, in the polls uh, as going moving forward. And as I said, we'll suffer to a certain extent from the fact that really he needs to be able to unite all of the, the right-wing vote, the, the vote from the right of centre, but the traditional new old right coalition and its fragmentation means that he may not be able to, to do all that. But We'll, we'll, that'll be yet to be seen. He's got two weeks to, to try to go you know, over the top of the, the leaders of those different parties that made up that coalition and reach out directly to voters and also to the large percentage of voters who didn't turn out. Uh, it was the second lowest turnout for presidential elections since the restoration of democracy in 1983. So there's still a, somewhere in the vicinity of about 23, 24% of the population um, that could be convinced to vote in that second round that could help swing the elections one way or the other. Most countries in the world don't have compulsory voting. What's the situation in Argentina? So Argentina has, has compulsory voting, but yet, as I've pointed out to you, something like 24% of the people didn't turn out to vote. Now, it's worth noting that 
say, unlike in Australia where, you know, you, you would definitely get a, a reasonable fine, $100. You know, I'm not sure exactly what it is at the moment. It might be $150. In Argentina, you're, you're much less likely to, to be penalised. But voting is seen as something that is important, you know, too. So it, it does generally generate a large level of participation. And, for example, you see that in the primaries, which are a sort of a, an obligatory primary that all parties who want to contest elections have to stand candidates in in order to surpass a certain base vote to then be able to participate as candidates in the election. Now, they're not compulsory, but they still have a large turnout. Uh, even if often you're going to vote for your party whose candidate is not being contested, there's no real primary, there's no other candidate for your party, and your party will more, you know, almost certainly get break the threshold of, you know, 2 3% in order to be able to be present on the ballot paper. But So there is a, a, a general sense of wanting to participate over and above the fact that, that it's compulsory. That said, in these primaries, the primaries just held were the lowest level of participation of any primaries up until now. Primaries have been in action since 2011, so there's not been that many of them, but participation there was about 74%, 73%, if I recall correctly. And in these elections, it was about 76%, which was the second lowest of any election since 1983. So, And I think that's explained by the fact that there is still a, a genuine distrust in the political class. Ironically, it's kind of what Millet really tapped into. So his whole campaign was against the political class, against the old politicians, presenting himself as a, 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 a new face. But unlike the new face in, in Ecuador, that presented himself as a, the face of calm and stability, uh, Millet was more like, you know, the, the more radical, the, the, the more wild, the more extreme, the better as a, as a break from the past. His actual election campaign, even if the content was of, of a new face, was, was very different in, in terms of the politics. But the problem now he faces is that he did that in the primaries, did very well, got 30% of the vote, did that again, in fact, got even more extreme in the, the first round of the election, in raising issues of even breaking with the Vatican, which, you know, in the context where Argentina for the first time ever has had a, a pope in the Vatican, Argentine pope, and in a, in a country that's quite Catholic, pretty extreme sort of uh, a measure to, to put forward. But despite that, didn't lose votes, but didn't gain votes, stated essentially 30%. And now we'll have to kind of build alliances with those same political cast, those same old traditional politicians that he's been sort of attacking or used as the main focus of, of attacking in his election campaign if he's going to want to build a broader support base in order to win in the second round. So You'll have to combine that with trying to see if he can mobilise those those people who didn't turn out to vote. As I said, many of them are just disillusioned with all the options on the table. The question will be now, of the two candidates left in the race, Millet and Massa, who can really present themselves as the, the most presidential candidate, who can really ensure that they're able to build beyond their existing support base uh, in order to, to secure that more than more than 50%. And then a lot will happen, no doubt, between now and, and the elections, as you mentioned, on the 19th. How much power does the president have in Argentina? The president certainly has a, a fair bit of power. It's a presidential system, as, as indicated, so it's not, not like a prime ministership. But that said, the, the one thing that is important to note is that regardless of who wins the presidential elections, no one will have a majority in parliament, neither in the upper or the lower house. And in fact, no one party will even have enough uh, MPs to ensure quorum for parliament. Regardless of who wins, the next four years is going, well, at least, at least there are midterm elections for the parliament, so things could change then. But let's say at least for the next two, if not for the next four years, there will be a fair amount of gridlock and a fair amount of needing to negotiate, unless 
you're able to break away MPs from different different parliamentary blocks to come to your side. As it stands now, the biggest block in Parliament is is the the Peronist block, those aligned with Massa. But even they even they themselves don't have enough to form quorum. So even just to get Parliament to sit, we'll, you know, they'll have to ensure that they haven't they're able to get other parties who are opposed to them to at least come to Parliament to debate the laws that, that they want want to debate. So I think we're going to you know we'll will be very difficult for whoever wins this presidency and it's far from being a, a sort of a an, an easy stroll in terms of even though there is a presidential system as to how much power they're going to have in the in the current period given the composition of the Congress. And that doesn't change at the moment? So the elections have already happened for that. What we've seen in those elections is that the, they, because they happened simultaneously with the presidential elections, although, as I said, because they have midterm elections, it wasn't the entire Congress up, up for elections. The end result of that was essentially Peronists largely held on to how many seats they previously had. The, the old, new, sort of right-wing coalition lost seats, but most of those seats essentially went to Millay. You know, that's the rough directory of what happened in Congress. So you, you have a, a kind of a freeway division in Congress where none of those three can really, on their own, pass legislation. And as said, and even just get quorum on their own, they're, they're unable to do that. We'll have to see how that fits in. And then, of course, there are smaller smaller blocks alongside them, including, for instance, the, the far left or the socialist left, who also ran in these elections. Fortunately, you know, their, their vote was quite small, but they have increased their presence in Parliament as well in Congress as well. So they, they may even find themselves, <laughs> even though they're the smallest bench in Parliament, crossbench in Parliament, they find themselves playing a key role in being able to secure votes that uh, anyone might need in order to either just get Parliament to sit in terms of quorum or to pass legislation. And Fred Frentes writes regularly for Green Left Weekly. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now, the Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. I'm speaking now with former academic and writer, Dr Tim Anderson. Tim, I want to start with the 7th of October and what really happened. We have Israel, which has one of the most widespread and sophisticated intelligence and surveillance systems in the world. Gaza is an open prison, reported that there are Israeli agents within Hamas, yet Israel maintains that the attack was a surprise attack. Do you believe that? I do. It was a surprise and a big failure. They had some intelligence. It's come out that something was being planned, but they thought it was a training exercise. That's one of the stories that's came out there. I don't believe in the this conspiracy theory that the Israelis orchestrated it to actually and then allowed hundreds and hundreds of their military, including senior officers, to be killed and captured, basically. Uh, that's what happened. I mean, contrary to the, the popular story, most of the 1,500 Israelis that were killed on that day or soon after were military people. And the aim of the operation, first of all, was to destroy the Gaza d- division, the main military base, which was set up to contain and repress Gaza. And the second one was to get prisoners for a huge prisoner exchange. I believe it was a surprise and uh, it damaged very severely, of course, the reputation of the Israeli intelligence. 
but also of the uh, the Iron Dome and the military itself, basically. But to be able to get all those hostages back to Palestine, can you understand how that happened? There's been reports that came out from one of the kibbutz that was um, taken and then the Israelis bombed it, killing the, killing the militants and the, and the hostages from Kibbutz Berry. Um, in, the, in the southern part of occupied Palestine. They're, they're aiming to take them back into, into Gaza, basically, and they did take them back into Gaza, including a number of senior officers. Talk a little bit about that massacre at Berry. Who was responsible for it? The kibbutz at Berry, it seems that... Uh, I don't know exactly what the objective was there, whether it was to take prisoners, simply to take prisoners there, but once that was certainly one of the objectives. Once they were there, remember that all of these settlements, they call them, or colonies you know, the, the expansion of the Israeli entity through the different colonies, they're surrounded by military posts. They all have military posts. So you can't speak of a settlement or a kibbutz in the desert or anywhere, or, or even, the, for example, the rave, you know, the music, the music festival. None of those things exist without military posts and military guards and so on. So at the kibbutz, the story that's emerged is that the aim was to take some of those people, whether they're military or not, and let's remember that Virtually all adults are, are military reservists, at least in the, in the Israeli system. The kibbutzes, they called for the Israeli military to come. When the Israeli military came along, they began with small arms fire uh, against the militants, against Hamas militants inside the kibbutz. And then they called in tank fire, and they used tank fire against relatively small buildings there. They destroyed it, and one of the survivors there who'd had got out with a militant who was going to take her to, to Gaza. She said that the Israeli tanks and, and, and fire killed everyone, basically, that was in there, both the, the kibbutzniks who were being taken prisoner and the militants. They killed everyone. Similar thing with the, with, the, with the music rave. There was, I don't know what was being attacked there, but there were military posts there. And then there was, and there's, there's video of this very severe crossfire. All of the, the young people fleeing the crossfire, basically, and many of them got got caught in the crossfire, but there's none of those activities happen without a military base and a military guard, basically. So soon after the military was there in such a force, you've got tanks, you've got bulldozers, you've got thousands and thousands of troops. It just gives you an idea of the strength and the power of the IDF. As I said, the prime objective of the Hamas uh, operation was to destroy the Gaza division. And they did a great deal of that because at least something like more than 700 of the people killed or the Israelis killed were, excluding the Palestinians, were, were military. One of the command centres, I don't know if it's the main command centre, one of the command centres there called an airstrike on the centre because the, the command centre was overrun by militants. So in that case also, you see the, the Israeli military, in this case the Air Force, uh, must have been responsible for killing soldiers as well as, uh, as, well as militants in the Gaza division. And we see these stories day after day about the, the dreadful Hamas building these tunnels under mm. Gaza. Well, they've got nowhere else to go, have they? It's an open-air prison. If they put your head up anywhere, you get shot down. It's their land. It's like a concentration camp. And furthermore, they have a right to struggle against colonisation and apartheid that's imposed on them, basically. They have a right. There's no doubt in international law that, in principle, they have a right to struggle, including armed struggle, against colonisers and people that are, that are denying their right to national self-determination. The polemic that's raised against them is that somehow or other they were attacking civilians, and that's, that's where the, 
the interesting debate begins and the evidence that we've seen of from uh, from both sides who was actually attacking civilians and and who was not. Would you have expected the ferocity of this attack by the Israelis over the last couple of weeks? The response, you mean, the response to the to the resistance uh, offensive, let's call it that, because it invo- does involve the militia of Palace, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad as well as the militia, Al-Qassam militia of Hamas. In response to that, I think what we saw really was, of course, we couldn't have predicted this. We couldn't have predicted the the scale of the resistance offensive either, because in the past, conflicts in Gaza, they've been largely massacres, haven't they? The, the, the casualties on the Israeli side have been very small. And in particular, the proportion of civilian casualties have always been very small. For example, the, two, the 2014 massacre in Gaza, I looked into this in a little bit of detail, and there are some independent sources. The resistance killed about 53 people. The Israelis killed more than 2,000. So usually it's a huge, disproportionate type of armed conflict in that way. But in that case also, we can see that 75% of the, of the Palestinian victims were civilians, according to UN sources, and only about 6% of the, the Israeli victims were civilians. So that's been the pattern in the past. This was quite different, of course, wasn't it? Because the scale of the, uh, the resistance attack was far greater. We haven't seen anything like this. Um, and the scale of the, of the Israeli revenge was also far greater. We know that they've killed around about 8,000 Palestinians now. Most clearly, most of them, probably well over 90% of them civilians. But according to Haaretz, the, the Israeli newspaper, it seems that the Israelis killed in the initial attack. More than half were military and, and other armed security forces. The Israelis keep on bringing in ISIS into this. Well, ISIS was created by the US through the Saudis, basically. They never attacked Israel at all. There was a stray rocket that went in there from Syria once, and they apologised to the Israelis for it. So everyone in the region knows that ISIS was operating as an agent of the US and you know, fed with US arms and money and intelligence also. That it's simply a diversion on the part of the Israelis to talk about ISIS. Really, people have said that... Uh, you know, it's more like, why would a stray rocket going into Israel, why would these supposedly fierce Islamic fanatics apologise to the Israelis? You know, they, ne- they never attacked Israel, basically. To pretend that ISIS is somehow on the other side and Hamas is... The, the, the only thing you can say is that ISIS was using an Islamic flag and Hamas is one, is one of the Islamic resistance groups. You know, in Palestine, there's, there's socialist, nationalist and Islamic resistance groups. There's about six of them. Hamas is the biggest in the Gaza Strip. But uh, so to associate them with ISIS is just really a, a diversion trying to say oh, these people are a death cult. They're these horrendous terrorists who have no regard for civilians or anything when they fight. Is this a US war or is it an Israeli war? It's a US war, I believe. I know there's controversy over this, but um, you see with the ground invasion of Gaza, it was led by 5,000 U.S. troops. That news has come out now. The U.S., I, I didn't expect it myself. I thought they would be reluctant to get in on the ground because U.S. body bags going home is going to damage their public relations exercise, basically. But the U.S. is a, is a guarantor, has always been a guarantor of the Israelis since they took over from the, from the British, basically. So the U.S. is clearly directing things, in my opinion. Well, that brings us to Lebanon. What's happening there? I'll just backtrack a little bit just to mm. make one proviso that uh, having said that the U.S. backs the Israelis, there's significant tension between the factions of 
the Israelis and the US. So, in other words, before this conflict, the Biden administration didn't like Netanyahu. They were against him. The liberal, liberal Jewish Zionists in the US also don't like Netanyahu. So there are some tensions in the relationship. But when I said the US backs the Israelis, I meant in, in a very general sort of sense. Um, on Lebanon, look, in Le- Lebanon, there is already Israeli bombing of South Lebanon because effectively, you know, the, historically, the peoples of South Lebanon and, and Palestine, they're not really different. You could say the same about Syria too, basically. So there's always this uh, link, particularly with the resistance operations in South Lebanon. Remember that the Hezbollah-led resistance in Lebanon has driven the Israelis out of South Lebanon twice in the last 20 years or 25 years, in 2000 and 2006. And as a result, Hezbollah in Lebanon has imposed what they call a, a type of equation where if the Israelis kill one resistance fighter, they'll kill one Israeli. They can do it. They've got significant capacity and they've got a huge missile capacity now of which the Israelis are very paranoid, basically, and it's part of the rationale for them constantly attacking Syria without any apparent provocation, basically. There have been some low-level low level activity. When I say low-level, I mean small arms, RPGs, these sorts of things, attacks on uh, Israeli military bases, both in North occupied Palestine there, the Galilee, and also in occupied Lebanon, because a lot of people don't know there are still some little pockets in South Lebanon which the Israelis occupied and haven't left, and they've set up military bases and and listening posts there, basically. So there has been that level of attack. There's been about 20 casualties on both sides, the Hezbollah and the the Israeli military, basically, and there's some level of mobilisation of Israeli armour up the north there. Now they've evacuated some tens of thousands of settlers from that northern area, but they've declared it a military zone. So there's some sort of fear, anticipation that the Lebanese resistance might get involved more seriously as they'd threatened with the ground invasion of Gaza, which is going on as we speak. We keep on hearing about the connections between Hezbollah and Iran. What about mm. the US involvement in Lebanon? The US funds the Lebanese military to a fair degree. They also have their allied factions. They call it the American bus in Lebanon. You know, politicians that, that do their will, basically, and are trying to get grace and favour with the, with the Americans and so on. And that's one extremist faction of the Christians. One what used to be a, a, an extremist faction of the Sunni Muslims, but that they've lost influence now. So the US has significant influence, and their main aim has been to try and maintain the formula that the French set up when they left, and that is to divide the country. It's a sectarian country. It doesn't really have a strong state at all. That's why Hezbollah was formed, to defend particularly the people of the south against all of the Israeli invasions. Now there's a good relationship between Hezbollah and the Lebanese army, despite the fact that the US funds it and tries to keep it anti-Hezbollah. So there's a friction there that the US doesn't like, and that's why Lebanon is another one of the the states in, in West Asia and the Middle East, which is effectively under siege, you know, you can, your credit cards won't work there, you can't send money there easily. Lebanon has really got an, a, a collapsed economy and, and the US has kept, and the other NATO states, France and Britain, have kept this pressure on Lebanon because they don't like the fact that the coalition, the dominant coalition in, in Lebanese politics includes Hezbollah, basically. And most of the Christian factions there work together with, or the progressive ones in government, work together with Hezbollah. And, that, and that's something that's distasteful to the US. But nevertheless, the US keeps trying to keep the state divided and and try and keep its hand in there. 
and the attacks on Iraq and Syria at the moment. I'm quite sure this is not a new thing. Well, there have been some, the Iraqi resistance in particular has been carrying out attacks on the U.S. occupation. As you know, the U.S. has been told it's not wanted in Iraq, but it refuses to leave. And the U.S. was never even invited into Syria. So there have been some relatively low-level attacks, but nevertheless, you know, drones and missile attacks on the U.S. occupation bases in Iraq and Syria. So that's part of the aggravation and the reason and, and in the region. And it's also why the, the, the regional resistance effectively basically led by Iran, has declared that their aim is to get rid of the U.S. presence in the entire region, which is a big ask because the biggest U.S. air base is in Qatar and the biggest naval base in Bahrain. So, you know, there, there's significant U.S. presence in the Persian Gulf, for example. I mean, Iran is surrounded by U.S. military bases. But they'd be a bit stupid, wouldn't they, to take Iran on? They would be, even though there are some people talking that up. But I think, you know, in, to some extent, we all rely, don't we, on the fact that there are some rational heads in the U.S. military still, because the U.S. is the one state that has actually used nuclear weapons against civilian cities in Japan. They've never promised, they refuse to promise not to use nuclear weapons in a first strike capacity. Same goes for the Israelis, basically. But the U.S. is, you count on the fact that there's some still caution in the US military about a war which is going to escalate, basically. And this is the problem in the region at the moment that all sides are seeing or, or playing a little bit cagey in the sense of how fast it's going to escalate. From Yemen, from the point of view of Yemen, the one, the one Arab country that actually had a revolution after the so-called Arab Spring, just recently there's another volley of missiles and drones that were sent into Israeli bases, towards Israeli bases rather, from Yemen, which is quite a long way away but uh, apparently most of them were intercepted. But they're significant. The, the whole region is really aflame, aroused, as indeed the world is. The conscience of the world has been aroused by particularly all the pictures of all the dead and injured children and civilians coming out of Gaza. I mean, I guess that's one reason why the Israelis tried to shut down the internet, and they did just recently, but it's opened up again. There's some Egyptian access to the internet. Some, maybe some other way has opened up just recently. So... The, the, the whole region is aroused in, in terms of the conscience of what's going on with the, what a Spanish minister, a government minister just called the planned genocide in Gaza by the Israelis. And so there are some dissenting voices even at, at a government level in the EU about this. The EU, most of the EU countries abstained from the recent vote in the UN for a ceasefire. Australia abstained also. Israel and the US, of course, oppose that because they want the ongoing war. They, they want this absolute decimation of, of Gaza. In fact, there's already plans to redevelop Gaza once it's been completely ethnically cleansed or slaughtered with some sort of new resort that comes from an Israeli think tank linked to Netanyahu. So there's this horrific open genocide going on and the, the region is very disturbed. You know, the, the demonstrations in Iraq, in Iran, in in Jordan, in Jordan, huge demonstrations there, but the regime is, of course, very different, very double-speak regime, like, like in Turkey. The, the Turkish people are also inflamed, but Erdogan is talking against Palestine, but sending uh, millions of litres of fuel to the Israelis, you know. So there's a, there's a strange sort of dance going on where the people are very agitated and the regimes are in their own trenches, according to their alignments and at the same time 
everyone is a bit wary of escalation when you don't know where it's going to go, how far it's going to go. But Iran, of course, would be a formidable opponent if the U.S. attacked Iran or if the Israelis incited the U.S. to attack Iran, which has not happened yet. Then Iran has already demonstrated with when it attacked the Ain al-Assad air base in Iraq after Trump murdered uh, General Soleimani and Mohandas in, in Baghdad. The very powerful and accurate uh, missile attack on the airbase there was something that confirmed to the U.S. military what it would have already known, that Iran has tremendous capacity. And they've said that if the U.S. makes an aggression towards them, or U.S. proxy, there's all these U.S. bases in the Persian Gulf and in the Arabian Peninsula. They can hit them very easily. They could hit Israel now if they wanted to, but I think the fact is there's a degree of restraint there too because Iran is also very alive to the, the problems of escalation. No one knows where it will lead to. And what role is Egypt playing? Egypt at the moment, it's a good question. Egypt at the moment is, of course, they've been collaborating with the Israelis to lock in the Gazans um, because they have control of the southern uh, access uh, port at, at Rafa there, point, I should say. Nevertheless, they did send a lot of um, humanitarian relief trucks, which the Israelis were trying to stop getting in. I think some of them actually made it in as a result of, with relief supplies as a result of an, an agreement where the resistance in Gaza released a few North American prisoners of war, basically. Appreciating the circumstances, a lot of the Israelis are themselves dual citizen North Americans. So probably they were dual citizen North Americans. So some of them were released. Egypt, they're not entering into it in any military sort of way, but there's a huge sympathy on the ground in Egypt with Palestinians, huge sympathy on the ground. In fact, it comes out, it spills out in things like you've had two incidents in recent years where Egyptian police have, have killed Israeli tourists who've gone to Egypt just because there's so much anti-Israeli feeling on the ground there. I think also it's probably fair to say that at least some of the, um, the components of the weapons that are manufactured in Gaza come in in covert ways from the Egyptian side, basically. But there's sympathetic channels within the military, I mean, I mean. Does Saudi Arabia have a role? Saudi Arabia is really, it has, has been, as you know, for a long time, very closely allied to the US and a major source of oil, uh, denominated in dollars, keeping the petrodollar alive, and also big um, purchaser of weapons, which it then distributes to all the various proxy groups it, it has run to support U.S. destabilization in, in North Africa and the Middle East, basically. But recently, and, and they haven't done anything to the Palestinians except throw some money around, like Qatar also, which has a huge amount of money. They use their money to sort of get influence. They bribe and corrupt the elites, basically. But they don't provide anything towards arming the resistance factions. Iran does that. Iran with Syria and Hezbollah does that. They help arm the resistance factions to defend Palestinian communities. If that hadn't happened, there wouldn't be, there probably wouldn't be Palestinian communities these days because the pace of the ethnic cleansing in occupied Palestine has really been moderated by constant resistance um, efforts there. So the Saudis never provide the arms that they have to the Palestinian resistance. They do provide them to Jabhat al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, ISIS, those sort of groups, which are typically used, as Biden himself has admitted, you know, to, to, to try and achieve the objectives the US are after, like the regime change in Syria, for example, was all of those groups were armed and funded by US allies to try and support the US dirty war to overthrow the government in Damascus.
uh, an effort which failed now. And of course, now the Saudis have shifted a bit and theirs was the biggest influence on the Arab League readmitting Syria, basically. Syria was a founder of the Arab League, but the Saudis have tried a type of counter-leverage approach by getting some agreements with China because they can see that China is the future in, in economic terms in many ways. So they're now selling oil to the Chinese in, in Yuan, um, breaking with the petrodollar, and now they're going just about to be admitted in January as a new member of BRICS, you know, so... They've done this without an apparent hard rupture with the U.S. so far. I, I can't imagine the U.S. is very happy with it, but the, the Saudis haven't totally broken with the U.S. But nevertheless, they haven't supported the, the armed Palestinian resistance. All they've done is throw some money around. And probably, for example, in the Trump plan of a few years ago, so-called peace plan, I think where the aim was to try and use some millions or billions of dollars to try and buy some sort of new settlement with Palestine, which was completely didn't involve the Palestinians at all. It was rejected, but Saudi money and Qatari money were probably involved in that too. Saudis are playing both both sides in a way, yeah. It's going to be a a shocking next couple of weeks for the people of Palestine. Yeah, it is already. I mean, the internet is coming back on gradually in Gaza, we're still able to see what's going on. It's a combination of a ground invasion involving US troops as well as Israelis and ongoing airstrikes, basically. So the reports are still coming through. The same thing is happening. Entire families are being wiped out. People are posting the, the images and the video of, of these injured people, dead, dead and injured people, um, arriving at the hospitals that still exist in in Gaza there. It's a terrible situation and really this is why I think now that there's at the UN uh, basically the world has turned against this stonewalling led by the US to try and allow give the Israelis a free hand to do anything that they want basically. We're seeing even in this country in Australia we're seeing some of the government ministers on the back foot now trying to defend their position because I think Penny Wong's position was talking about pauses instead of a ceasefire, but then Australia wouldn't support the ceasefire resolution in the UN, which nevertheless went through 120 to 14 with 45 abstentions. So I think there's more defensiveness going on. You see also in Sydney, for example, some of the councils are flying the Palestinian flag and some of their local MPs are supporting them because they know that it's dangerous for them to alienate their constituents too much. Even SBS ran a report showing that uh, large parts of Western Sydney were Arab and Muslim communities who had typically voted Labor in recent years and felt completely betrayed now. So I think there's a real backlash going on around the world and it's showing up in some domestic ways too. Thank you once again, Tim. You're welcome, Jan. And of course, Tim is Dr. Tim Anderson. right to be in public space undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical.
stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. On Tuesday Home Time, now we turn to the Pacific with Nick McClellan, who's a correspondent with Ireland's Business and much happening in the Pacific, Nick. There's a lot happening in the region, um, both on the international stage with um, some key resolutions passing the uh, United Nations General Assembly in recent week. Also, uh, leaders across the region, presidents and prime ministers preparing to travel to uh, Rarotonga uh, in the Cook Islands for the annual Pacific Islands Forum, the summit of presidents and prime ministers that brings together 18 member countries to talk about uh, regional affairs. Beyond that, there's uh, a lot of action on the ground and uh, major changes happening in country by country. For example, in New Caledonia, uh, people gearing up for uh, further meetings with the French government about a new political statute, uh, major initiatives by the new government of French Polynesia around decolonisation and the nuclear legacies of 193 French nuclear tests. There's a lot happening in the region as we speak. Likely to be any surprises at the forum? Yes, there's some some interesting debates brewing at the forum, often difficult to square the circle of the different interests and concerns of the member states. You've got a country as large as Australia, you've got a country as small as Tuvalu or the Cook Islands with, you know, 15 to 20,000 people. Those countries often have fundamentally different interests when it comes to central questions like climate change. You know, it's no surprise to listeners of your program that Australia is on, often on the outer because of the sp- slow pace of um, action on climate emission, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, Australia's failure to pay its fair share of climate finance, and so on. So there's some, often some uneasy compromises and a lot of behind-the-scenes closed-door negotiations to find compromise statements that can keep a range of people happy. One of the problems is that there's a number of issues brewing, both at regional level and at international level, that add uh, potential conflict and disagreement within the organisation. They always tend to muddle through, but that's either done by kicking difficult questions down the road to a further meeting, or by fudging the fundamental uh, issue in in a consensus statement, and then everyone goes off and does what they want to do afterwards. And that's a difficulty for the forum at a time of increasing complexity in regional affairs and just the sheer number of countries that want to engage with the forum. Um, So there's two or three divisive debates coming up uh, at this year's forum uh, uh, between the 6th and the 10th of November in the Cook Islands. One example is around deep sea mining. There's a push by uh, transnational corporations 
to exploit uh, deep ocean mineral resources and potentially also oil and gas. Most Pacific Island countries have called for a moratorium on uh, exploitation of deep sea minerals and Pacific civil society groups grouped under a, a network called the Pacific Blue Line are actually calling for a ban on deep sea mining. In contrast, there's three countries in particular that are forging ahead with uh, uh, partnerships with transnational corporations to uh, exploit the marine resources, deep sea mineral resources in their exclusive economic zones. So Cook Islands, indeed the host of this year's forum under Prime Minister Mark Brown, uh, Nauru and uh, Tonga to a certain extent have all um, you know, been pushing ahead trying to change the rules of the International Seabed Authority that would allow uh, mining to begin. So there'll be some sharp words, um, particularly because um, um, Forum Chair now, Mark Brown of the Cook Islands, is a strong supporter of uh, deep sea mining. Another contentious issue is about West Papua. Uh, the Melanesian Spearhead Group, the five-member sub-regional organisation, couldn't come to a consensus around support for West Papuan uh, uh, issues, particularly the United Liberation Movement of West Papua wanted to be a full member of the MSG, and they've handballed the problem to the forum leaders. Now, once again, within the forum, there are diametrically opposed positions around uh, how much people should criticise Indonesia over its uh, decades-long uh, occupation of West Papua and the ongoing human rights violations there against uh, uh, the Melanesian people. So that will, once again... Um, involves some real differences between uh, church and civil society groups that are campaigning for support for West Papua and right to self-determination and countries like Australia and Papua New Guinea and others that are very wary about taking on this question because it will breach relations with Indonesia. I thought that the spearhead group was behind West Papua. Some members are very much so. Um, uh, Vanuatu for a long time has been a real champion of West Papuan rights. There's a lot of sympathy across the Melanesian countries like Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Fiji, certainly amongst ordinary people, amongst the church networks and so on. But um, Papua New Guinea has always been fearful about Indonesia. Uh, it's the only country in the Pacific with a land border rather than surrounded by ocean. And that's so the border between West Papua and um, Papua New Guinea has often been a site of confrontation, you know, back from the 80s and 90s and onwards, uh, Indonesian troops crossed the borders in hot pursuit of West Papuans who'd fled as refugees uh, and were living in camps. There's a lot of nuance about that popular support for West Papua. At government level, um, people are engaging with uh, the major powers. And you can see this in a whole range of issues that one of the challenges for Forum Island countries is they're trying to develop their own agenda around their priorities, particularly climate action, around the oceans, around uh, fisheries, around human and social cultural development. But at the same time, the many countries that want to engage with the, the region um, have their own barriers to push. So Indonesia has been very active diplomatically within the region, wooing support, particularly amongst MSG members and others, to basically take the West Papua question off the regional agenda. You see the same with France. Um, in July this year, I was the only foreign reporter to follow President Macron when he went to New Caledonia. And he travelled on in an unprecedented visit to Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea. He was very much pushing France's role as a climate actor, talking about forests, about seabed uh, issues around uh, coastal erosion and so on. 
But he was very eager that no one would talk about um, um, French colonialism. In Port Vila, he talked about, uh, you know, the importance of France as an alternative to the United States and China and their strategic competition in the region. He talked about the danger of the new imperialism threatening uh, the sovereignty of Pacific Island states. But many people I've spoken to across New Caledonia, French Polynesia, PNG, were saying, hang on, hang on, let's talk about the old imperialism. Let's talk about the remaining French empire, the US influence in its colonies like Guam and American Samoa. It's very hard for governments that are desperately in need of assistance from overseas to deal with the ravages of climate change, the debt burdens that come out of the COVID pandemic and so on, and yet have these states try and interfere in regional affairs uh, using their aid and development assistance as leverage uh, to water down strong Pacific policies. And what was the third issue for the forum? Sorry, the other one I was going to mention was about uh, the UN Conference of the Parties, the so-called COPs. You know, the Pacific has been fighting the hard fight since the beginning, since 1992, around uh, trying to strengthen action on reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and Australia has put a bid in the t- on the table to host COP31. Um, we're up to the number 28 this year. Um, and uh, in the United Arab, um, you know, in, in, in the Middle East, uh, COP is being hosted by an oil company executive, which shows that they're not working as well as they should be. Pacific diplomacy has been very active on other fronts. For example, Vanuatu successfully uh, um, shepherded a motion through the UN General Assembly asking for an advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice uh, seeking action on the human rights implications of climate change. Countries around the world are being asked to put in submissions now uh, by early next year about why they think the International Court of Justice, the world's highest uh, court, should uh, make an advisory opinion setting out the obligations of states towards climate change and human rights. It's a major initiative. And that's come in part from the frustration that people feel about the Conference of the Parties. Now, Australia wants to host it and has been lobbying incredibly hard um, to get Pacific support for uh, um, what they've called an Australia-Pacific COP originally. Now there's a, a wariness. All the forum leaders have, in fact, endorsed the idea of having a conference of the parties in the Southern Hemisphere based in Australia. On balance, they feel that the attention that will come from bringing people to the Grand Pacific Ocean uh, outweighs the obvious uh, challenges. That hasn't persuaded uh, certainly, Pacific civil society, a number of environment groups, uh, churches, trade unions and others have worried that Australia will use this as an opportunity to greenwash its fossil fuel industry to say we're climate champions at the same time as we know the government is expanding oil and gas exploration in key parts of Australia, is working with transnational corporations to open up the Beetaloo Basin, Scarborough and so on. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.